When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode is brought to you by Audible. In case you didn't know, Audible.com is the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 85,000 titles to choose from. Listeners of this podcast can sign up for a free 14-day trial and receive a free audiobook download. You can cancel at any time before your 14 days are up and keep the audiobook. Or you can continue on and choose from one of their great subscription plans. Today, I would like to recommend The King's Speech by Mark Logue and Peter Conradi. This is the story of Lionel Logue, a commoner from Australia, and Albert George, who was fortunately the second son of George V of the United Kingdom. Fortunate because although um, speeches and public appearances will be required of him, they won't be as many as the first son, Edward, who becomes Edward VIII of the United Kingdom. And Albert George um, has a speech impediment, a stutter, um, problems speaking, speaking in public, and very shy. And he tries many different things, many different techniques. He sees a lot of different people. But one day, he, uh, he and Lionel Logue get together. Now, Lionel Logue is not an official doctor. He doesn't have a degree, but he has spent his life, and he's made it his life's work um, helping people with their speech problems for different reasons, mostly after uh, people come back from World War I who've been gassed and things like that. So they work together for years, and Lionel Logue's approach helps um, Albert it actually helps him to the point where they don't. Uh, Albert doesn't need to see him for about two years. They stay they stay friends, but he doesn't need his services. So everything's going along fine. Albert gets married, he has kids, and he's going to be able to get through it. It's really still a struggle for him to speak, but he's he's able to manage, and things are you know look well for him. But uh, on January 1936, King the King George V dies. Edward becomes king, and now George, who never expected this, is suddenly you know next in line to become king. Well, that's one thing. But then, just with uh, short of a year, uh, Edward abdicates the throne uh, in December of 1936 for love. He wants to marry Miss Wallace Simpson, and now George is going to become king of the uh, United Kingdom, and he has to deal with this. So he needs Lionel Logue back. But then, three years later. World War II starts, and the king is definitely more needed with a lot more public uh, speeches and public appearances, and he is going to need Lionel Logue's services once again. So it's an amazing story, and the movie is out. Of course, I will be going to see the movie um, as soon as I can afford uh, you know, to go see it with the price of gas and price of uh, movie tickets going up. But anyway, um, I'm sure the movie is good, but to get more of a detailed story, it's, it's definitely, we would definitely want to check out the book and you get the story behind the story because Mark Logue, one of the writers, is the grandson of Lionel Logue. He's the one who had all his uh, papers and all his notes and things like that, so he put the book together. Peter Conradi is a, is a writer for one of the newspapers, so you can get the story behind the story and it really is amazing and I think you'll enjoy it very much.
Now, there are two ways to sign up for this free trial. You can go to my website, worldwar2podcast.net, and click on the banner, or you can go to audibletrial.com slash worldwar2podcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash worldwar2podcast. That way they'll know who sent you. Thank you very much. But if you need another reason to go to my website, I have one. When you get time, go to my website, worldwar2podcast.net, Look at the top of the screen and click on the video selection. I have about six um, um, videos on there from YouTube and things like that. And you'll see one on there that very few people know about. Even though people that know World War II, there's another aspect that I was able to find. Um, so check it out. You'll know which one it is right away because I just put it on there uh, yesterday. So check it out. And it's something that very few people know about. I think you'll be fascinated by it and you'll be able to do more research. And I'll probably cover it later. But Again, it's, it's pretty neat. It's very, uh, not very well known, but it is a very fascinating story. So here is the uh, interview I have with Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast. Um, I just wanted to give you a heads up. I had some technical issues, nothing too major. Um, as you're listening, when you're about halfway through it for about five minutes, the quality of the audio drops a little bit, and it's all on my side. Um, I live, live in the middle of nowhere, and my uh, Internet connection's not as good as it could be. So uh, Laszlo was gracious enough. We actually recorded it twice, and so I had to slip in a little of my recording. Again, um, you hear everything. Everything's fine. You'll just notice the change, and it only lasts for about five minutes, and then it goes back to the, the good quality. But I just wanted to give you a heads up, so do not attempt to adjust your iPod. Um, and again, I want to apologize to the listeners. I want to apologize to Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast. But we got it in there. You can still hear, hear everything. It's an amazing story. The Long March uh, is a, not only allows the Communist Party to survive in China, but it also allows Mao Zedong to come and be ahead of the uh, Communist Party and to stay there. So it's a really amazing story. But I just wanted to uh, let you know what to expect. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, and thank you for listening to A History of World War II podcast, episode 19, The Long March. Well, as promised, we have Laszlo Montgomery with us from the China History Podcast. Hello, Laszlo. Hi, Ray. Thanks for inviting me on your show this week. Thank you for accepting. So uh, on the last podcast, I was giving everybody a little um, intro into uh, stuff we've talked about, how we met, and that both started our podcast roughly the same time and that um, you were waiting for someone to do a podcast on China, and I was waiting for someone to do one on World War II, and I think we both just got tired of waiting and started our own. Yeah, that's how it worked. That's how it worked, and I'm still waiting for a China history podcast. <laughs> there's only mine. Yeah, and I'm still waiting, too. I mean, there's a lot of uh, snippets out there, but if just a kind of an overall World War II one, I think I just got frustrated and decided to dust off all the books and take a stab at it. Now, I was telling everybody um, uh, kind of your background that you started you started studying the language, I think it was in uh, 1979 when you started studying Mandarin. Yeah, that was 1979 was uh, when China, when U.S. normalized relations with China, Jimmy Carter was president, and there was a, a promise of a whole new world in U.S.-China trade and uh, diplomatic relations, and so I... Uh, was a history major at the time. So I took on a second major and began studying Mandarin. And uh, that was, uh, what, 32 years ago. So Mandarin was your second major? Yes. Now now I'm really impressed. Okay. 
and you lived in Hong Kong for a while. Yeah, lived there from 89 to 1998, a year after the uh, uh, Hong Kong was returned to China. That must have been an amazing, amazing time. It was an it was an amazing day, very historic day. Watched it with my with my kids in Hong Kong, who couldn't care less. They were like three years old, and uh, uh, it was a just a very uh, humid, rainy day. But we they they had it. There was a fantastic fireworks uh, display that night, and uh, it was a uh, it was very interesting to be watching the history while it happened. That's amazing. So I was telling everyone you still uh, work um, with, I think, companies in China, and you still travel there um, on a, I guess, regular or semi-regular basis. And I was telling them about the um, – I like the way you do your podcast where you kind of, to a certain degree, jump around from different subjects because there's so much to cover. I mean, you couldn't really do it, do it chronolo- chronologically because that's, what, 5,000 years worth of history. But I've been doing it. I've been doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, I just finished – I listened to the latest one, the Ming Dynasty. Is that part one that you put out recently? Part one. Part two will be coming very shortly. Yeah, just really – just I was telling it's really amazing stuff because it's, you know, it's a world I truly know very little about, which is I think why I was intimidated as far as covering China um, during World War II. But um, it's, just listening to your podcast, I feel like I have a you know a better – basis for understanding so when i do read something it actually makes more sense now yeah it's a very intimidating subject the names are hard to pronounce hard to remember and it's so different from our american history and western civilization so it is a little uh, intimidating but anyway i try to make it somewhat approachable and uh uh just give a good general overview to those that you know, are interested in Chinese history, interested to know, but, you know, maybe not interested enough to go read a history book. But if it's sort of gotcha. presented in some semi-entertaining format, then uh, perhaps uh, 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 this, uh, then my show was, you know, a good, suitable way to to learn it. Yeah, because it's so much easier just to download and listen and kind of take it all in. Um, I, I haven't really been uh, – I haven't really received a lot of emails from people who've um, asked me why my show is, I, in my opinion, kind of unbalanced. It's pretty much focused on Europe. That's where a lot of my library comes from, my interest comes from. But I'm trying to do a better job, which is one of the reasons I contacted you. But, um, you know, when, when Americans – well, I guess I should say when citizens of the U.S., I should be geo, as geopolitically correct as I possibly can because, like you, I get emails from all over the world. I guess when um, – a lot of U.S. citizens think about World War II. If you don't live on the West Coast or Hawaii or have family in the Navy, maybe, you know, you think of Hitler and Stalin, Churchill, Battle of the Bulge, um, Beaches of Norway, that kind of thing. But I just wanted to do a better job of, um, you know, being able to balance it out and focus on Asia. So I might be calling you in the future if that's okay with you. Anytime. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So as far as the long march is, is concerned, and we're going to cover that in, uh, in detail in a couple of minutes, but is it fair to say that that's, um, I guess, maybe the way it's taught to the school children over there? It's kind of like, well, you know, George Washington is to us. You know, a lot of these things really happen, but it does get blown up and become more than just the story, it's, you know, more of what it represents. 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's part of the whole mythology of the whole revolution. Uh, you know, it was, we have Valley Forge, you know, George you know, Washington and the Bastille in, uh, in revolutionary France, storming of the Winter Palace in Russia. You know, these were all central events in the revolutionary mythology and for, and for uh, uh, China, the Long March uh, sort of plays that role. And actually, things that happen during the Long March are also uh, fodder for, uh, uh, you know, pushing the, uh, you know, the, 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 the spirits and all the sacrifices of the old revolutionaries. Right. I'm sure there's lots of movies, lots of books, a lot of memoirs, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that, and a, and a lot of it was glorified in in Chinese cinema, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, and whatnot. I mean, it's a great story. Uh, I'm yeah. sure a good deal of it is uh, is true. You know, it's just hard to it's hard to know, you know, how much is exaggerated, how much has been left out. Um, you know, it has to be very carefully polished. You know how the oh, yeah. uh, long march is presented, you know, because it's really is one of one of the pillars of legitimacy of the uh, Communist Party. Right. Well, that's why you're here. So we'll talk about the long march, and then you straighten me up and let me know if I, um, you know, let me know when I butcher the names or the cities, and <laughs> just keep me on the straight and narrow path. Okay. Great. So the next podcast that I'm going to do uh, on China and Mao and that kind of thing is going to start January 1937. So I figured we could talk about the Long March, um, but then just kind of, you know, hit the highlights until we get to the end of 1936, and that'll set up the next podcast, if that's okay. Sounds so, perfect. Um, all right. So could you give us give us just like a setup about why it was important for the um, the Communist Party that had been in that area for a couple of years, why it was important for all 80,000 or 100,000, whatever it was, to pick up and and go through the jungles. Um, just let us, you know, give us an idea of why it was necessary for them to do that. Well, they they had been there for a while up in Jiangxi Province uh, in April 1927. April 12th, 1927, Jiang Kai shek moved again. You know, there had been an since the death of Sun Yat Sen in 1925, there had been a an uneasy peace between the communists and the KMT, and after. Uh, Jiang Kai-shek, you know, uh, uh, got the uh, Big Air Du and the Green Gang on his side and, and got them to move against all the communists in Shanghai. I mean, pretty much almost all of them were wiped out, and those that were not uh, killed in that, uh, in, that, in that whole thing in April of 27, they retreated to Jiangxi province, which is in the interior of China. Even today, some parts of it are still pretty backward, but 1930s, Jiangxi was, it was just a great hideout place. You know, none of the roads, uh, you know, that you see today. I mean, it was was a good place to hide, and that's where they sort of regrouped. And uh, so up in uh, 1927, Mao was up there in Jingangshan, up in Jiangxi. They set up this Soviet Republic there. And they started to plant some roots and uh, train, and that's where Mao established his uh, 
his theory that you know you don't need the proletariat. China is an agrarian nation. Uh, you, you need you need uh, you need to have the peasants on your side and incorporated into the revolution. All kinds of weird things that uh, do, you know went against the Soviet orthodoxy. And so while the, so they continued to grow there, and 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 Jiang Kai-shek kept trying to root them out, and he had four campaigns to annihilate them. They were called the annihilation campaigns, but. You know, they couldn't. Uh, it always came down to fighting these guys on fighting the communists on their terrain. They're up in the mountains. It was very difficult to uh, to fight them. So Jiang Kai-shek finally, with the fifth and final campaign, they were really meant business and they were going to... Uh, Really get them, and they and they started to move in on them, and and uh, and, and and shrink there slowly, and circle them, and sort of push them into smaller and smaller territory. And it got to the point in '34 where the communists said, "Hey, you know, we got to get out of here. I mean, they're going to just sooner or later." As as Peng Dehuai said, they were drying the pond to catch the fish. Old Chinese saying just, you know, shrinking down their land to the point where they wouldn't have anywhere to run. So that's where they decided in October 34 to get out of town and head north to safety. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Okay. And, when, and just one thing uh, I wanted to ask, the other four annihilation campaigns, one of the reasons that, that those did not um, succeed was because Mao had an idea of what um, the nationalists were doing because of the spies. The Russians, I believe, had set up for them. or Yeah, yes. The, the Soviets had infiltrated uh, the KMT, and there was a – the, the communists had a great, uh, great spy. They were they were privy to a great spy network, so they they knew a lot about what was going on. So um, the fifth annihilation army is coming. It's it's huge. Chiang Kai Shek means business this time. He's kind of, I guess, to a certain degree, ignoring the Japanese or focusing on the uh, the, the Chinese communists, and he's he's really trying to wipe them out this time. So they know they have to take off. But even at this point. Now, um, I believe he, he's not in charge. He's not in charge of, of the government. He's not in charge of the military. But he's already got a bad reputation with some of the leaders 
Boku and maybe Joe and Lai, and uh, they're going to try and not to, to leave him behind. Yeah, Ma was definitely not a popular guy. I mean, he had his allies, of course, but he was not a very popular guy. And again, he had this, you know, these strange, unorthodox uh, theories about how revolution should be made. And, you know, so, yeah, they wanted to try and leave him behind, but he wasn't going to miss out on this. He knew the importance of this. So and, and really to stay behind meant almost certain death. So. Uh, he he left with them. I, I believe uh, the Long March, the first uh, group started leaving October 16th, 1934, across the Yudu River, southern part of Jiangxi. That's where they took off, uh, anywhere from 80 to 100,000 men, 50 women, 20,000 administrative cadres, and Mao left a couple days later on the 18th, and then it began. Okay, so they're all they're all going on, and then but they have trouble with the nationalists, um, pretty much straight away. Yeah, a month after they're out, they they the Battle of the Xiang River takes place. That's the first uh, bit of bad luck that the Red Army faces. It's only they're only they've only left Jiangxi for a month, and they just get really messed up at this uh, at this battle there there half the army had crossed the river half the the other half had not even started crossing and they got that's when uh, Jiang's and the KMT forces pounced on them and uh it the you know of the 86,000 or you know whatever it is number of troops that started off there were only 30,000 left at the end of this battle. And it just, yeah, there were just lots of desertions. The, the, ba- the, 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 the baggage train just carrying all the, you know, the printing presses, party records, right. uh, furniture. I mean, it, it was like 50 miles long. And they, uh, and they couldn't, uh, this thing was just slowing them down, and they just everything was just jettisoned at this uh, at this battle. So it was a real disaster, and uh, caused a lot of uh, low morale. So it uh, it this one really hurt. So that happens uh, pretty pretty early, and so you have a couple of cross purposes here. I think Chiang Kai Shek is trying to put everybody, push all the communists together, get them to go up north. He wants to be able to keep an eye on them in one location. But Mao was trying to slow down the progress of the march because he needs time to to regain his position as either military and or political leader. So there's cross purposes there. And so after this horrible defeat from the nationalists, I, I think it's in mid-January where um, Mao's going to make a move at getting some of his power back. Is that right? Yeah, he uh, you know, he had been working with his allies within the party. Uh, his two most powerful allies was uh, Luo Fu and uh, Wang Jiaxiang. Uh, uh, these two uh, worked with Mao to take down Bo Gu and Otto Braun, also known as Li De. That was the, the German, uh, uh, German that the uh, Soviets had sent to, to work with the uh, to work with the communists. Anyway, those two, Boku, Li De, they were really the two most powerful guys. And Mao, along with Luo Fu and Wang Jiaxiang, they 
sort of uh, at the Sunyi conference that was January 15th to 17th mm-hmm. in Guizhou. They met, they rehashed, you know, what went wrong, how did things, you know, how do we get so chopped up at the Xiang River and what was going wrong, what do we got to do? And, and Boku and Lita, they were both attacked at the meeting and held responsible and Mao sort of pounced on them uh, using his proxies and directly. And so they lost a lot of prestige. So one of the results of the Sunyi conference, I mean, not uh, it's, it's, it's said, OK, well, that's where Mao took over. Well, he didn't really take over, but that's where he sort of established himself. He got into the party secretariat into a, a high military uh, position. And uh, the and Boku and Lita they were discredited. So that's uh, that was a critical turning point, uh, and 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 uh, and where Mao really established himself, and there there was no stopping him after that. Okay, so that's in mid January, and then isn't there another battle uh, near the end of January? Yeah, January twenty eighth, the mm-hmm. Battle of Tuchang, mm-hmm. another huge loss for the. Um, for the Red Army, another 4,000 men killed, which was really 10% of the Red Army at that point. Wow. Mao was blamed. Uh, the true cause was mostly faulty intel on the size of the, of the nationalist forces. But uh, Mao made a comeback from there. He didn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, although he was faulted for this, it did, wasn't, uh, wasn't fatal. Right. And by February, Wafu, he's now the top spot. Wafu, who's been in charge all these years, he's now out. Um, and at this point, the um, decision has been made that he should march with the uh, First Red Army to Sichuan and hook up with uh, Zhang Guotao's army, Fourth Army, and... Uh, uh, and meet up with the two armies. Right. But Mao's not ready for that. He's making progress. His man is now in charge, but he's not ready to meet up with um, Cheng Kutao because he's, he, that man has um, a very good reputation. He has a larger army, and he wants to be in charge too. And I think I read yeah, somewhere... Cheng Kutao is a much larger army. He has much greater prestige. Right. Uh, he's really the top guy and Mao didn't feel like meeting up with him and in his territory and in where he had, you know, where he was really uh, uh, the top guy. So Mao didn't, was in no hurry to hook up with Zhang Guotao and he starts uh, creating diversions and he starts heading back to Zunyi. He ends up taking that town from the nationalists, puts up a great fight. And then, uh, you know, for February, March, and April uh, 1935, he's, you know, being chased uh, and marching all over Guizhou and Yunnan, and and, uh, Chiang Kai-shek is busy putting up all kinds of traps for him and using, you know, hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of thousands of troops at his disposal trying to, you know, intercept Mao and not let him cross the Yangtze River and, you know, keep them from from uh, uh, from moving north right so Chiang Kai-shek 
I'm sorry, Chiang Kai-shek is trying to still push them north. The communist hierarchy agreed to all get together, but Mao is the only one who does not want to go north, so he keeps running all over the place. And then um, I think it's by the end of April, he just can't fight the group anymore, the hierarchy, and he agrees uh, to go north. Exactly. But even then, they so do they go now to... Mao's mm-hmm. troops are down to about 22,000... Down to about 22,000. Wow. So he starts heading towards Sichuan. Okay. And he, even though he's not ready, he pretty much doesn't have a choice, and he knows there's going to be some kind of showdown with um, with that commander. Now, is it so, they, so they're marching, and I think it's in late May where they crossed the Dadu River, which was, um, I don't know how to put it, it was certainly blown up in the, uh, in the legend of the Long March. Yeah, the Battle of Ludin Bridge. Um, May thirty first, nineteen thirty five. You know, it's just another milestone in the in the long march. It was a very dramatic, come from behind, dramatic victory for the communists at this ancient bridge that had been built in the eighteenth century, seventeen oh one, and uh, uh, the battle had huge propaganda value and it had been milked, you know, for years. <laughs> And then he uh, crossed the Snowy Mountains, <clears throat> which is another dramatic uh, tale of survival in uh, early June of 1935. Mm-hmm. And then he uh, uh, is able to, they meet up in uh, uh Ko. The two armies join up, and there's very cordial relations between Zhang Guotao and uh, Mao. They hadn't seen each other since 1923. So, you know, even though there was all this uh, competition between the two for supremacy, they had not actually been face-to-face since two years after the founding of the party. So here they are. They're up there in uh, Sichuan and... uh, uh, outwardly, everything is okay and mm-hmm. cordial, and but inside, uh, lots of uh, lots going on. So I think I read somewhere that um, the reason Mao wanted to not meet up with um, Chiang Kuo-tao was that he had a reputation for removing or killing people to get what he wanted. You know, Mao had that same reputation, but he was actually, you know. Browbeating, browbeating your opponent is one thing, but knowing that your adversary might kill you if you're in his way is another thing. So these two get together, but they really can't agree on who should run what, and do they pretty much go their separate way, or what happens after they can't agree on who should run things? Uh, well, they, between the, they start heading north, they, they go through what's known as the grasslands. Mm-hmm. Uh, their armies just both suffer terrible, terrible Hardships on this 11,000-foot plateau. It, it's been right by between the watersheds of both the Yellow River and Yangtze River, and they completely walked into this just no man's land. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no food. It was just grass growing in just the most unha- unhospitable swamps, <laughs> and uh, many have called this the worst part of the Long March. I mean, even in August, the weather was freezing. High up, severe hardships, and, and, and the stories of you know soldiers eating grass and leather, animal skins, any dogs, anything you get their hands on. Uh, many comrades left behind in the grasslands. Uh, 
but uh, you know, and they, they 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 get past there, and they uh, September eighth, uh, nineteen thirty-five. John Guotao and Mao—they're still together. There are at this point they're arguing on tactics and who's right. in charge. And uh, Mao thought that John Guotao was making some sort of move against him, so he just uh, sort of disappeared and with his army. And uh, just a, and they head off on their own. Mao had spies, you know, within Zhang Guotao's camp, two of which, uh, Yang Shangkun and uh, Li Xiannian, you know, old revolutionaries who, you know, were were party leaders up until their they died in the in the eighties, nineties. Uh, they informed on Zhang Guotao and said, "Hey, you know, Mao, there's." there's Guy's going to try and bump you off. So that's why Mao said, you know, he had to get out of there. And um, so that's why that's why uh, Mao sort of took off very surreptitiously. And that was that. Then it was like an open rift. So Mao is heading towards um, Soviet-controlled territory for supplies and support because earlier, I can't remember exactly when, earlier he had sent an envoy or representative to Moscow to plead his case. And so he's got that going for him, and then he's going to try to get closer to there, um, where he can get some supplies from them. What happens to the um, to uh, Cheng Kuotao's army after they split? The, uh, he just gets uh, decimated. He his large force totally wiped out by the um, by the. Uh, he had eighty thousand troops, like three quarters of them were killed, and he never made a comeback. Uh, he never was able to make a comeback uh, after that. And once he lost his force, that was really it for him. Mao still held on to his. So anyway, it's September 15th. The last battle of the Long March was at a place called Lazako. Uh, it was against the KMT 14th Division. They guarded this strategic and narrow mountain pass with thousand foot high cliffs. And, you know, so the, Red Army had to, like, get through this very narrow pass, like only 12 feet across in some parts, with the KMT at the top, blockhouses just shooting down on them. But uh, another thing, just like the Battle of Lutin Bridge, the Battle of Latsiko is another one filled with all kinds of just, you know, stories of incredible bravery. And uh, it was a great triumph. You know, uh, Mao had some... uh, uh, people, some of his men just climbed these mountains and, you know, just rained down grenades and whatnot on the uh, nationalist troops. And so they got through and, you know, after one last skirmish with uh, the uh, Ma, uh, the Ma clan out there in the uh, in the northwest, this was a Muslim uh, uh, clan, the Ma family. They had they were they had sided with the nationalists and they had one last skirmish, but after they finished with those guys and made fast work of them, Mao's army did make it to uh, Shanxi province, and and that was it. September, um, you know, September, October, th- October in thirty-five. That's pretty much there. They they arrive. Zhang Guotao's army gets there, you know, in shambles, and in October, one year later. Uh, the second uh, Red Army that had been, you know, wandering going all over China, led by Marshal He Long, they were the last 
to arrive October uh, 22nd, 1936, was the famous union of the three armies. And everybody that had set out on the long march at last in uh, October 36, they were all together once again. And from this spot in Shanxi called Yan'an, that was became their base for the next 10 years until 1948. And uh, that's where the Communist Party sort of regrouped. Amazing. So by the time the long march is over with, it, it almost sounds like there were more officers than soldiers when you go from like 80,000 to you know, maybe less than 10,000 or something like that. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, but all the great ones were there. Mao, Zhou Enlai, yeah. Chen Yun, Zhu De, Hu Yaobang, Lin Biao, Peng Dehuai. I mean, the whole aristocracy of the revolution. I mean, these were the guys. They're, they're called the long marchers. You know, they're all dying out. You know, these, these were people in their, that were in their teens and 20s and 30s, you know, in the 19th. Mm-hmm. So there's not very many of them left. And, uh, but they were called the, the long marchers. In 1938, by the way, Zhang Guotao ended up defecting to the uh, uh, nationalists. So uh, a little postscript to his role in the Long March. He ended up dying in Canada many, many, many years later. So so during the Long March, Mao is able to manipulate it with his way back into position. He's able to get uh, remove his rivals. He gets the support of the Soviet Union because it kind of tricks them into, you know, through his envoy. They don't know any radio contact for a lot of this. And so he really is able to get almost, I guess, everything he wanted out of the long march that he uh, aimed to get when it started. That's that's pretty much how it goes. And he was really from from that point forward at the end of the long march until mm-hmm. September 1976, uh, when he died, he was the man in charge, and undisputed uh, uh, leader of the party. And over the period of the next, you know, 10 years mm-hmm. uh, in Yan'an and, uh, you know, during the Civil War, he, of course, you know, Right. It it consolidated his power within the party and started setting up the party. So from like, I guess, what, late 35, 36 until the end of the war, he's going to consolidate so he can be ready for the next struggle, which is to take on the nationalists to see who's going to control China. Yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, and then remember, and then sort of the last thing is into December 12th when they had the Xi'an incident when Jiang Kai-shek was – Kidnapped by the young marshal Zhang Xueliang and 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 coerced into cooperating with uh, Mao and the communists to stop the civil war and you know join forces to fight uh, uh, the Japanese, which is what they did till 1945. Yeah, and that was a lot of that was orchestrated by Moscow. They wanted China unified to a certain degree, focus on Japan to keep Japan out of Russian territory. That was just. Stalin's nightmare, and he was able to, he was able to bring it off more or less, and it's pretty amazing. That's it. Yeah. So on the next podcast, I'll pick up January 1937. Try to, try to do it some justice, uh, especially with the kidnapping. That's so fascinating. Um, supposedly the young marshals working with Chiang Kai-shek, and then, you know, for a while being his prisoner, and Mao couldn't be more happy. But then it gets even more crazy from there. So I'll try to, try to cover that in the future. So. Laszlo, again, I want to thank you for being with us, for uh, talking about this, and I wanted to thank you for your podcast because it really is a, a win-
video into a whole different world that is pretty much new to me. And I'm going to let you um, sign off. But first, I want to just tell everybody, for everyone who's listening to this, if you could please go to the China History Podcast, uh, subscribe to it, rate it, review it, send us an email. Because when we do the podcast, we spend a lot of time alone on our computer or with our books. And it's nice to hear from the outside world that, you know, someone appreciates it. So um, for me and Laszlo, just want to say thank you for listening, because uh, without you, there's not much of a point to it. And I'll let Laszlo have the last word. Ray, thank you very much for inviting me on your show for today. Uh, two history podcasters are better than one, I, I, <laughs> I hope, in, in, for, for, this, uh, for this topic. So, uh, again, I want to thank you, and uh, I've enjoyed it. And this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Claremont, California. Thanks very much.